what excites me is that I, I think that there's just so much to learn and I love constantly learning about like, okay, so here's what we think we know about psychology. How do we adapt into these new scenarios and these new situations? This is Aaron May. I'm John Henry Forster, and this is Awkward Silence. Silences. <laughs> Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Awkward Silences. Today, we're here with Thomas Watkins, UX architect, principal, and founder at Three Leaf. We're going to be talking today about design psychology. Welcome, Thomas. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Got JH here too. Yeah, I feel like we always get a little heady and meta with our topics, but psychology should really, we should really be able to lean into that. This episode should be, should be fun. Definitely. Awesome. So Thomas, what is design psychology and how is it that this is something that you've become an expert on? Yeah. So I always describe design psychology, like if I'm explaining what I do to like relatives who don't like understand <laughs> the space necessarily is like. I make things easy to use, but then like digging a layer deep into that, it, it's kind of similar to ergonomics, but for how we think and how we behave. Right. So most people have some understanding of ergonomics where they've seen like ergonomic scissors before where they have the grips for the fingers or ergonomic chairs that it's designed for your back. And, you know, I always tell people like, imagine you're designing software, but you're designing it for how people are mentally. Right. So how do people perceive things? How do people remember and attend to things? And when you design with that in mind, you're able to get better goals in terms of making things easy to use. Okay. So it's like an input to design in a way, right? So we're trying to make this thing easier to use. And if we understand these things about people or these truisms that helps us do that, or I'm I think trying to make so. sure I'm... I, th I think that's a good way of looking at it. Like, it's a, like another analogy might be the way a mechanical engineer has knowledge of physical phenomenon, mm. he as design psychologists have knowledge of human psychology. And so when we're designing things, we're kind of able to help engineer some of, you know, things to take advantage of things that we know about humans. So what are some of the dimensions of, you know, psychology? I remember I took the same intro to psychology class in college. Many of us probably took and, you know, everyone wants to go straight for the weird stuff like abnormal psychology. But right. of course, psychology, there's a wide range of dimensions and characteristics. And so is the goal of design psychology and UX research context, like, are you just trying to make users happy? Are you trying to understand like what are you trying to know and understand about a user's psychology and then what do you want to do with it yeah i think it's okay so there's a lot of good stuff in there right i think that so i'll do the second one first is like the goals i think back in the day the goal was usability where it was a lower bar where software was so unusable that you were just trying to get well but then now you have user experience that incorporates more of the affective stuff right where you're trying to reach the, so it's got to be usable at least, and then like enjoyable, hopefully, so that you get, you know, better metrics of usage for your products. In terms of the types of psychology, I think that cognitive psychology is kind of the core one, right? So cognitive psychology, that's right. The field where you're studying the sensory perception and the cognition, right? So how do 
you know, when things come in to your eyeballs and your ears, how is that information getting in? So the relevance there might be things like colorblindness, right? Don't mix blue green for things that need to be discerned. So that would be something there. And then how things are processed, like on its way to the brain. And then, you know, after that, how do people think about things? So I think the core being cognitive psychology, that field, I think that behaviorism finds its way in most of uh, gamification. Experimental psychology, the techniques there is, is a lot of the lab research methods that we do. Really, a lot of it is coming from experimental, various applications of experimental psychology. And then also anthropology, right? So a lot of the field research comes from the anthropology tradition. That's probably most of it, I think. Yeah, I'm, I went to my college experience as well. I was uh, an econ major. My first thought was like, oh, some of this sounds like behavioral economics, where you learn about all these phenomenon of like endowment effect or sunk cost fallacy and like all the ways that people are irrational. It sounds like the way you just described that is like, this is a little bit of like an umbrella that pulls from those right. things. So you understand people in a more holistic way, and then you can apply those lessons to whatever you're designing. That's correct. And now if someone is a psych major and they're listening to this and they're like, oh, great, I'll be perfectly prepared for UX. Unfortunately, not quite. You'll, there's still a lot of <laughs> gaps there that you'd have to, but I think it does give a good foundation for being able to kind of, oh, and social psychology. I think there's a little bit of that in there. A lot of these interesting effects of how people um, interact and behave and um, how they perceive others, especially since in some ways we perceive software as being almost like a person. So like, you know, that whole kind of uh, dance between the user and the technology becomes relevant too. Yeah, you mentioned, so there's some, you've got your psychology degree or, you know, have studied psychology, whatever it might be, and you're ready to enter the field of U.S. research. There are some gaps, you said, you've got a good, maybe a good footing, a good foundation to build on, but what are some things you're going to start to, uh, what are the, some of those differences between design psychology and U.S. research? How do they relate to each other? Yeah, that's, so that's a super good question, right? So I think that one of the first things that I noticed in my career is that the level of rigor that I was trained for early on didn't necessarily apply to the business world. Like, you know, you didn't, you, didn't, you, sh you should still get people's permission to do research, but people often don't. So we've got that continuum in the world of research. You've got theoretical research on one side, apply it on the other side, and the extent to which your research is answering a question now, that means it's more applied versus if your research questions are trying to build theory, then that's theoretical or basic research. So it's virtually all applied, like everything. That's even the if, hope, even right? if it's, yeah, <laughs> even if it's kind of, yeah, right. I mean, even if it's in kind of a lab setting and not a field setting, it's still applied research because you're like, okay, sit down and take a look at this website we built and try to shop and buy something. And then you're seeing if this website is, you know, going to be able to work. I think that the overlap I think is in the methodology and when folks are, if they're able to get some training on research, then they know how to think in terms of like, okay, how am I going to set up a study to answer a specific question? If I start off with like, okay, here's a, a question we think we have based upon observations. How do I set things up so that we can actually answer that question? I think there's a lot of overlap there, but ultimately when I think when folks come into the profession, they just have to realize you're mixing with the business world and the business world, the philosophy of the business world is pragmatism. And so and in many <laughs> cases, radical pragmatism, where it's the only thing that matters is 
you know, what, what increases the bottom line tomorrow, you know, not even like down the line. And so adapting to that, I think sometimes is a little bit of a gap for researchers, right? Timelines and, you know, what levels of rigor are, are considered acceptable. But uh, ultimately, I think a lot of those folks are trained with the kind of thinking that ends up benefiting. It feels like maybe to help snap this into place, like just like some sort of like example around how des uh, design psychology can be useful for folks would be cool. So like, I don't know if you have one from your background or if there's like a canonical example that people go to is like a classic one, but maybe to help snap it into focus, that'd be a cool way to. Uh... Yeah, let's take, you have a button and the question is, should we use an icon? Should we use a label or should we use both? Well, there's some factors that play into that. So with an icon, a good icon, you're leveraging something called the picture superiority effect. Picture superiority effect is that you more quickly and more accurately recognize pictures, but then they have to be the right pictures. And this is, you know, right. It, it, it is a map. It has a, have a close semantic relationship with what you're trying to do. Yes. Yeah, so like the link versus the yeah, attachment icons on some apps or they're like, they look exactly the same. <laughs> okay, so again, like link. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Like, like yeah, a link yeah. versus paper, paper clip yeah. versus the link. Right. Yeah. What do you want? Yeah. What right. do you want me there's to do that, here? And then, then there's reading, being able to, so reading something that's more clear, but then it's also uh, a little bit of labor, labor intensive. You don't get it instantly like you do a picture, but it's more clear. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. So then in those kind of discussions, you typically want to caution teams from like developing an idea that one thing is always better than the other. It's more about being right. aware of the different psychological phenomena. And then being able to make mm -hmm. that nuanced decision based upon the needs of the use case you're trying to. Yeah. Right. So if you had 10 buttons, you know, together, which might use from, um, you might say, well, that's going to take someone a long time to read. We got to go icons on this, but they have to be good icons. Too. Yeah, no, that's, or, I think no. that's true. And then the good icons part, that's a big deal. There used to be this software, this is like video production software called Sony Vegas. It, 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 I don't know, calling out specific things, but it was, they had a lot of problems, really uh, <laughs> riddled with problems. And, and, and a lot of software back then would have this same problem where there'd be this row of all these unknown icons and you have no idea like what they are, what they do. And it would be like right. 20 like images in a row. And you're like, what the heck are these? You're like mouse over each one. Right. And the right. tooltip wasn't much better in terms of being helpful. But yeah, like, yeah, there's a the whole thing with icons like, how much does it semantically match the thing it's trying to depict? How familiar is the image to begin with? Um, right. Like a paperclip is familiar. It was. It was <laughs> when we used paper. <laughs> You're right, the disc per se, yeah. and all of that. Yeah. Yeah. Right, right. Well, yeah, no, it's funny because if it's not immediately recognizable, like, right, then it almost becomes a recall right. thing. You're trying to <laughs> like figure you're trying it to out. make someone recognize yeah. something, but they, that they're actually having to go back through their deep trenches of the filing system in their brain exactly. to figure yeah. out what the, it even is. And you so. probably at some point are getting into how users use the software too, right? Because if you are making pro software that people live in all day, every day, some of those shortcuts and like density of information of just having tons of icons is probably somewhat appreciated, right? I'm in here eight hours a day. I'm a video editor. That's different than right. this person comes in here once a month and they can't remember a single thing in here. And so like that maybe is probably not the right approach, right? So there's all these different factors that you kind of have to be aware of. And I guess that's what you were saying with, you just need to know the phenomena so you can figure out how to apply them in the situation. You can't have like one rule to make every design decision, right? Yeah, it, yeah absolutely. And on the specific point you just brought up, Alan Cooper has this, 
awesome concept of you could be a beginner, an expert, but most people with most software are a perpetual intermediate, he calls it. <laughs> and so it, 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 see, they're not like a beginner where, you know, you, you want to, it's like a slope, you can almost slope it, right? Where there's somewhere in the mm -hmm. middle. So they're not going to get to this expert layer where they know all of the features, like, you know, like in an Excel, knowing how to do the macros and everything like that. But yeah, then yeah. it's not like kiosk level or, you know, a wizard where you're loading something and you're just only going to use it once where you're designing it for that beginner. Most software, it's like this middle area where you do expect them to learn it, you know, where you're able to forgive if they don't get everything right away. You want mm -hmm. it to be as instant as possible, but it's not the end of the world if it takes like maybe a couple of minutes to learn some mm -hmm. really powerful features. But then you've got that kind of middle zone. All right, a quick awkward interruption here. It's fun to talk about user research, but you know what's really fun? is doing user research, and we want to help you with that. We want to help you so much that we have created a special place. It's called userinterviews.com slash awkward for you to get your first three participants free. We all know we should be talking to users more, so we went ahead and removed as many barriers as possible. It's going to be easy. It's going to be quick. You're going to love it. So get over there and check it out. And then when you're done with that, go on over to your favorite podcasting app and leave us a review, please. One, one thing we were talking about, right, is people from like a psychology background, what do they need to learn about business to kind of adapt and get into that mentality and the differences there, which I think you articulated well. There's probably the thing in the opposite direction, right, of I'm just a designer. I fell into it from the applied business side of got in there and, you know, learned how to do some things and loved it and took to it. I'd like to learn more about this psychology side of things. Like what are some ways for people to like, you know, explore this area and, and learn more? Yeah, I think there's some good psychology books out there. There's one that's called Designing with the Mind in Mind. And I think it's mm. a really good book at, at just putting in fairly simple terms a lot of the relevant psychological phenomena that are just really helpful to be aware of. I mean, then there's things like that everybody knows about, like uh, what's Krug's book about everybody? Oh, uh, don't make me yeah, think. Yeah, don't make me think. I, I, think that's a, I think that's a fairly good opener. If, if someone has no idea about psychology and design, I think that's it too. But designing with the mind in mind, I think, goes a little bit deep, but it's very, very accessible. Awesome. Any other popular ones? The, you talked about the recall and the recognize. Are there other that you kind of in your work go to a lot when you think about? The, the concepts, is that what you're looking for? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, I think uh, one that's very often overlooked nowadays is this idea of like of uh, workload when we're talking about usability. And uh, it's kind of gone out of fashion, but I think it should come back. And that's this idea that there's these there's different kinds of load. There's visual load intellectual load, memory load, and motor load. But you know, and, and it really, the idea is mm -hmm. that you're trying to take away difficulty from the user to free them up to work on the stuff that they want to work on. And I think that's mm -hmm. really when you think of things in terms of the, you know, folks who I train, I, one of the first things I do is train a lot of their thinking to kind of be related to that kind of stuff, because it makes mm -hmm. it easier to evaluate design decisions, right? We've all been in that situation where there's competing design decisions and we're kind of, you know, talking about which one we want and you want to make that as objective a, a process as possible, right? You want to take opinion out of it as to the extent to which you, you can and to say like, okay, mm -hmm. 
-hmm. we're going to look at these two competing design decisions options and we're going to look at their advantages and disadvantages in terms of the various different types of loads so you might say this list has uh, you know maybe more visual load this showing stuff this drop down has slightly more motor load because you have to click mm -hmm. it, you know, mm -hmm. and, then, and then so depending on the situation and the user and the use case, which one, which trade-off do we want to make? And it, it's surprisingly mm -hmm. enlightening when you go through software and you kind of think. Right. It's not a binary, like, or not even a simple gradient of harder or easier. It's like, in what way is it harder and in what context is one trade-off better, right. better than the That's other? That's right. Especially like a way like a design systems are an awesome thing and everyone needs to, you know, try to get some kind of, the, but sometimes when we, uh, adapt our thinking a little bit too slanted to the kind of engineering visual design side of the equation, we might have like too much importance on making, you know, you know, making final decisions, which widget are we going to use for X situation and, and kind of take the nuance out of it. We still need to have that kind of early thinking of like, okay. What's kind of the ideal flow for the user in this before we commit to using, you know, which perfect widget we're going to use in the end, like, how are we going to actually right. think about this? And then, and then from that perspective, you're more likely to do design systems kind of the right way where you're updating the design system. It serves the design needs rather than kind of using that to dominate what's available. Right. Right. Starting exactly. with the component to start with exactly. the yeah. use cases. Yeah. This, this conversation just reminded me of a cool web resource. It's cogload.com. So C-O-G-L-O-D-E.com. And it just is like a list of like all these different phenomenon, like scarcity, social proof, you know, loss aversion, anchoring. Uh, and they just have like little like, mm -hmm. it's probably not going to teach you a ton about all those things, but they have like a little sentence or two about like what it is. And then it's probably a good way to like learn more about some of these things. I hadn't thought about this site in a while. Oh, it's, it's awesome. A, it's Cog yeah, Cogload, L-O-D-E. Oh yeah, this, yeah, is, yeah, this is great. I don't think I've uh, seen this. Yeah, this is. It just is like a table of contents of all of these different things. And I think they kind of, you know, open up the world of like, you can go learn more about these concepts, you know, from there. Is, is it the one applied behavioral cool. insights with confidence? Okay. I think yes. so. Yeah, yeah. I'm just looking at like the nuggets and stuff. Yeah. I haven't been on the site yeah, the forever, nuggets. but I remember having fun with this a, a year or two ago. Yeah, nice. Really nice. Cool. So design psychology, risks in, you know, in the <laughs> wrong hands, in the untrained hands. I don't know. Can Is there uh, risk in applying um, some of these principles or like what should someone know when they think about bringing design psychology into a, I guess, a UX research context. I, the only risk that I kind of see is not understanding things. What, you know, it's that kind of old thing of a little bit of knowledge makes you dangerous kind of thing. Right. I think that folks should dedicate themselves to trying to learn a little bit about psychology and, and kind of view themselves as a design psychologist. I think in any field you manage or operate in, you should learn a little bit about the tradition. When I figured out that I was going to be directing and managing uh, visual designers, I actually, years ago, I, I took the time to take art classes online. I'm like, well, you know what? I'm going to commit to mm -hmm. learning more right. about the basis of the craft, not just, oh, I'm going to hop into Figma or Sketch and then I'll learn how to use this tool. And then I'm a visual <laughs> designer, right? It's like, no, what, what, let me put myself in their world and figure out what, and then I learned a lot of enlightening things uh, about the thought process you come from, from that kind of training. And I think that it's good to read just a, a book or two, at least try to learn about how do humans operate. That's humans in general. And then you want to learn about your users specifically, right? So 
Um, don't let it fall too out of fashion to do usable test. <laughs> For sure. I, Aaron, is this maybe where you're trying to get at a little bit of some of these things that you can use to make great design and really help users on their journey are some of the same things that if you have a real strong knowledge of them, you can use for kind of some more dark patterns or, or other suspect behaviors to maybe move a metric, but not in the right way. Have you seen that be like, I, I guess that's true yeah, of anything. Oh, yeah, right? In the marketing world, that's definitely used all the time. So for example, the fact that <laughs> it's impossible to ignore moving things in your peripheral vision. You can't ignore them. It's a, so historically, you had to see the tiger coming out of the bushes. <laughs> sure, so, yeah. good. so, right. So, 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 you know, when something has blinking stuff to get your attention, that's, it's like, God, that's so annoying. It's, you can't not pay attention to it. Or the fact that in order to place ads inside of the content that you're trying to consume, it un annoyingly has right. to get more and closer and closer to it because we adapt and we learn that it's an ad, right? So you have that phenomenon called banner blindness, where, you know, back when ads were mostly banners, you, you don't even look at them, right? The eye tracking data shows that mm -hmm. people's eyes uh, skip past it entirely. So then they got smarter or they put, started putting, you know, links in the news article that you're reading or, you know, or, or making things look like news articles, but actually just ads. <laughs> <laughs> so, so yeah, dark patterns, we have to, you know. You, you always have to watch out for that, but it's just knowledge. It's going to be used for good and bad. Yeah, Watch out for those product people too, <laughs> yes. though. I'll tell you what, there's deck friends everywhere, but it does feel like, I don't know. I don't know how everything's going to shake out, but people are very aware of draw. There was, um, what's his name from the social, oh, Tristan, um, the Netflix movie. Yeah. Yeah. Tristan. Yeah. Where, right. There's the, we'll push the algorithm to addict right. to our app and all this sort of stuff that that's happening. And. We're still addicted, of course, but we, uh, at least it's, we're aware of it now. And, and video games are able to be more addictive than they were back in the day. <laughs> more sophisticated. They hire psychologists right, right. for those production. Of right, right. We, we, you got me thinking about with the workload stuff, right? Where it's like, don't make me think, don't make me work. Like, make it easy for me in all these different ways. When we had um, a games user researcher on, it was interesting because he was talking about you, like, want to make it actually the right amount of hard. <laughs> Right in that context where it's like, make me think just enough, but not too much. It's, it's slightly different goals. And that's super important. So right, like, for example, right. if you're training people or educating people, you uh, want to make things a certain amount of difficult so that they could exercise it and then, and so they could get mm -hmm. there. So that, it, that is true. So then if you're making like productivity software, then it's nice if you assume that they're already are going to have difficulty with the thing that they care about. Let's reduce the. Right, right. Save them time. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I guess what are some, because I always talked about, you know, the, the tension between these different things. It's like, well, you can focus on this truth or that truth. You can't always do them in equal measure all the time. You got to make some choices. So like, what are some good, I don't know, frameworks or ways of thinking about how to make those choices? So we were just talking about, you know, you probably know your business and you have a good sense of what your business goals are, maybe what your user's goals are, but how do I go about identifying a psychological truth that is a good fit for my goals? Yeah, I think my that the goals? whole it has to be baked into the design process to think of things in terms of the user and, and the and what the user is doing. So we all know about personas and you know scenarios and stuff, but I think making that more so the center of the design process and not just jumping to screens and you know. I'm going to go to dribble, like be inspired by these beautiful screens. And then I'm going to make 
same thing. No, but instead saying like, okay, who's the user? Well, we don't really know yet because we haven't done reviews. Okay. Well, what do we know? What do we think we know about the user? Let's gather assumptions and create uh, hot personas or uh, they call it a proto personas. We have some working idea of who we think we're making it for, and then we'll fill it in with more research. And then once we got, we've got our cast of personas, then we have our set of scenarios for each persona of what are folks doing with this? And then the business can prioritize which things are more important, what cannot be compromised on. And then once you have that, I think as part of the design process, walking through, you know, this is uh, Sally, the salesperson, and she's using this software to walk through this process and she's doing X and making everything forcing, I think in the rope revolver on somebody is doing something with the software and going through it like that. And then bare minimum walking through your Figma screens, thinking through what can go wrong at the various different steps. It's not going to be the happy path most of the time. Right. And um, bare minimum doing that and then hopefully getting far ahead enough of your development team so you can have time for use. Is there a world where like, as you become, <clears throat> you know, familiar with all these different phenomenon and, and ways that maybe people are irrational or have biases or blind spots and stuff that you can like turn those on your own design practices and be like, we probably have a tendency towards this, or we're overlooking this. Like, right. Like we're talking a lot from the user context, but presumably the person designing the experience has those same sort of gaps or, you know, misses in their thinking, right? Yeah, it's, I totally think so. Like, like, like getting meta about it where the design sure. team is yeah, like, yeah. like, yeah, I think so. I think so. Like being, I mean, I try to do that as just a productivity habit with everything, you know, like, like if I make a daily list and the list is huge, then I won't get anything done. But if I can focus it on like <laughs> right. two things and maybe I'll get one thing, yeah, mm -hmm. gaming ourselves. Uh, I was people just, what do you, what do you like about your job the most, about UX research, most design psychology? What keeps you excited about it? It's, you know, technology is changing so much. Um, it's cool to see some of these fields and how they manifest. What I like the most the is coming right? up with so. crazy design ideas and scaring the hell out of the development scene. No, no, no. <laughs> oh, no, yeah, I think um, <laughs> what I like the most is that it's, um, Technology is always changing, but I think that we haven't gotten obsolete yet. And I mean, the, the work changes and we might have like skill sets that get obsolete and we have to update to the new tools. But I mean, what excites me is that I, I think that there's just so much to learn and I love constantly learning about like, okay, so here's what we think we know about psychology. How do we adapt into these new scenarios and these new situations? Do you have any favorite design psychology principles that like you you find fascinating or you are always telling to people is, you know, you should learn about this? Man, there's so many. I, I, at the top of my head, I would probably say the mental model, the idea of the mental model as a basic one. We all like know something about it, but I think that's probably the most powerful concept or one of the most powerful concepts we have is that there's what it is, but then there's how we think about it. Right. Right, right, right. Yeah. And is that what basically a mental model is? Because I feel like that's something you hear all the time now. And I wonder if some people is just become like a 
a phrase people say. But yeah, what do, when we talk about mental models at the basic level, what are we talking about? That is a good question because for a while, mental models to people was meaning like a diagram of how people think about something. Mm -hmm. But it, it really was just supposed to mean what do people think is going on? So like one example would be like when you push the brakes on your car, it's doing some complex process that we don't know what it is doing unless we're a mechanic. <laughs> I prefer but not way, to think about it. Yeah, right? But, 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 but the way we kind of think about it, right, it's like, well, it's sort of like you're pushing down on this pad and the pad is pushing on the axle and it's like slowing it down because it's putting pressure on the axle. And it kind of feels right, right. like that's happening. And so when you design right. to support like the way people think of things, then you end up getting right. some advantages because, because you're leveraging assumptions that they already have. So there's less mental power that has to be put into understanding it. Right. So you're, so it, it might be yeah. wrong. Like, like a engineer, I remember uh, we're working on one project where it was, you moved a box from one place to another and it mm -hmm. represented something got loaded or something got put there and loaded. And I asked the developers, well. So can we have it do where it's just this quick loading, this quick little loading bar and it, you know, just takes like a second. And the developer thought that was crazy. I said, well, they, they said, well, it happens instantly. Like, you don't, it doesn't load at all. I said, yeah, yeah. But if you put a loading bar in it, it kind of feels like, like, like something's happening. Right. And it, we, they ended up building it and it, it demoed really well and users felt like something was happening because it was just a quick loading bar and it just felt. Because if it was too instant, it's, you're not sure, it's like, okay, did something happen or did I just move a box from one side to the other? But the middle model of like, I'm doing something, so I'm going to support that idea by just having this quick little loading effect. And then it kind of supports and plays into the way the user uh, thinks about it. Right. It's like the autosave. It's like, Correct. please yeah, yeah, tell yeah. me. Yeah, 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 it'll just kind of take in the corner. <laughs> I need to yeah. know. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. Not taking that for granted. Yeah. Awesome. Thomas, it's been so nice to have you here. Thanks for joining us. Absolutely. Likewise. Thanks for listening to Awkward Silences, brought to you by User Interviews. Theme music by Fragile Gang. Editing and sound production by Carrie Boyd. <laughs>